0: Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. Do you remember taking old 8mm home movies or watching educational film reels in school? Maybe you've seen grainy old silent movies. Unfortunately, many of these films have been lost to time. But today on the show, we'll hear from people who are repurposing and resurrecting films from the past. In the second half of the program, we'll hear a short conversation with the Alloy Orchestra. For over 20 years, this trio of musicians has been performing and recording accompaniments for classic silent film. Using electronic instruments and found objects, their modern scores often give new life to old films. But first, we'll hear a conversation with archivist and outsider librarian, Rick Pralinger. Pralinger has personally collected over 60,000 ephemeral film and is an integral part of the Internet Archive, the Internet's largest public access digital library. Andy Finley spoke with Pralinger in September when he was visiting Bloomington and the IU Cinema. Our guest today is Professor Rick
1: Prelinger. Professor Prelinger is an archivist, writer, filmmaker, and outsider librarian. In 1982, he founded the Prelinger Archives, a collection of industrial, advertising, educational, and amateur films that was acquired by the Library of Congress in 2002. He's partnered with the Internet Archive and has recently made several film historical interventions called Lost Landscapes of San Francisco and the Lost Landscapes of Detroit. Along with Megan Pralinger, he's the co-founder of the Pralinger Library, an appropriation-friendly private research library open to the public in downtown San Francisco. His archival work currently focuses on collecting, recontextualizing, and exhibiting home movies and amateur films. Rick, thank you for being here with us today. It's a pleasure. Well, Rick, tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a long history in and out of academia, and especially in film. What brought you to this point in your career where you find yourself teaching? Um, I was a college dropout, and I was working as a typesetter. <laughs> That's a, an extinct
2: occupation. But I'd always, uh, since childhood, been interested in archival films for some reason. I used to watch the documentaries on TV, like the 20th century with Walter Cronkite, which was all war and disasters, newsreel footage. And I found myself getting frustrated, even as a kid, because it was edited, and I wanted to see the whole film. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it was something about that that appealed to me. And... uh I was living in New York at the time, and my housemates were just finishing a documentary that was um, quite successful called Atomic Cafe. And after Atomic Cafe, the producer Norman Lear came to them and said, make me an Atomic Cafe about sex and romance. What he meant by that was make an archival film about sexuality and romance in America after World War II. So I was hired as research director.
1: Well, that sounds like fun research.
2: It was an interesting opportunity because, you know, you can't go to the indexes. In those days, they were all cards. You know, this was 1982. You really have to think about um, looking in a, in a more obscure places for the kind of images you want. Um, and what I ended up doing was looking for the kind of films that were uh, produced to train us how to be good Americans, how to be good boys and good girls, how to be citizens, how to be good consumers, and so on. And what I found was that there were hundreds of thousands of films that had been made by educational media companies to train people in social guidance, hygiene, how to date how to get married, all these kind of things. And um, there was a vast body of films that were made by every company and every organization in America. If you think about the web today, and you expect pretty much every company or organization to have a website, in those days everybody made films. They were shown in schools, and they were shown at lunch hours and industrial plants. And nobody was collecting them. Nobody cared. It was... a uh, a great opportunity and after the film uh, was finished I began to collect and very quickly I had you know a few hundred films piled around my bed you know and then I got an office and I had a few thousand films and the rest uh, it just grew
1: Well, I have to ask, what were your conclusions on what it means to be a good American from from all your research in this? Did you find that there was a diversity of recommendations from the films you were looking at, or was there some uh, underlying themes?
2: You know, when you look at the old social guidance films from the 40s and 50s and 60s, and people are pretty familiar with them now. Everybody knows dating do's and don'ts. And Indiana University, the film archive shows social guidance films Mm -hmm. once or twice a month. So they're kind of out in the world again, and they're easy to stereotype. But actually, the world of the 40s and 50s and 60s isn't that simple. You know, it may appear that everybody's trapped in these stereotypical roles, but um, there's a lot of slippage, and there was also a lot of resistance. You know, kids found ways to... uh, Bypass, you know, the rules that adults lay down, and, you know, kids developed their own culture, which didn't much care for anything their parents had to say. So the films are really more a record of the way we were supposed to be. So it isn't so much history as it was really lived, it's the history of persuasion. And, you know, when you look at advertising, and you see these unrealistic role models in advertising, you know, the women in the 50s kitchen dressed in party dresses, you know that these aren't real. It's, it's the way we were supposed to be, and that's what these films show.
1: That's an interesting point. In fact, one of the questions I had prepared for you was whether or not you thought amateur films, documentary films, educational films were maybe not a true example of public history, but would you think of them as a pure example of public history? You know, the very
2: act of picking up a camera is an act of filtering. You choose what to photograph. You hold your camera a certain way. You decide, yes, I'll shoot this. No, I won't shoot that. That said, home movies are a lot closer to authentic evidence than anything I've ever seen. It's why I love them. Last few years, all my Archival and production activities have kind of shifted over to home movies. I've been collecting them heavily for about 10 years. And um, i got to say, home movies are cinema for me now. I hardly watch anything else. Think of, uh, think of it this way. There are hundreds of millions of home movies in the world starting in the 30s when the price went down when we moved from expensive 16 millimeter to cheaper eight millimeter working people shoot home movies people of color shoot home movies rural and farm families shoot home movies and as this amazing record of daily life and work and ceremonies you know the the one kind of skew mm-hmm. is that people tend to shoot home movies about things they like, people they love, stuff they want to remember. You rarely see home movies about things you don't want to remember. They're very <laughs> positive, and yet they're this incredible record. It's a, the 20th century is a century that's almost completely documented in film, and home movies um, have it all.
1: It sounds a lot like digital archaeology to me.
2: Analog (laughs) archaeology.
1: Analog, of course, of course. It's
2: analog. Um, And analog archaeology, you know, film's a funny thing because you've got to scan it. It can be hard to deal with. It's really artisanal. It's temperamental. It can deteriorate. Sometimes it smells, you know, vinegar. If your home Mm. movies smell of vinegar, you should scan them quick because they're deteriorating. But it's still a lot easier than digital archaeology. If you keep your films cool and dry, they'll stick around for a while and we still haven't figured out a way to preserve our bits. Mm. A lot of people working on it. A lot of real intelligence is, is, is being applied to that task. But still, the as uh, Howard Besser, one of my colleagues, says, the default condition of physical media is to last, and the default condition of digital
1: media is to disappear. Well, could you tell us more about your work with the Digital Archive? Because that's a really relevant topic, especially in the last... Oh, year or two, particularly maybe even among many of our listeners. For example, a popular website run by ESPN, Grantland, was taken down. And Gawker, one of the, the famous media gossip websites, has also been removed from the Internet. And I'm not sure that any of that has been properly archived. It still is in the ownership of the people who shut it down, Um, so those who maybe had no interest in continuing its operation, either of those websites, what happens to these influential and important website postings that uh, are now disappeared? Does the Internet Archive do its best to to keep everything? And can we possibly do that?
2: Internet Archive tries. Um, I'm one of their board members, and uh, I work mostly on the film side. Mm -hmm. But they've been collecting the web since 1996, and they started getting really good at it in the 2000s. They're figuring out somewhere around 500 billion web pages. It's not all of them. You not know, close. There's, there's a <laughs> lot more than that, but that's pretty good. Um, Internet Archive also works with kind of an amazing guy named Jason Scott, who coordinates a group called the Archive Team, which is a group of volunteers who, when the word goes out that a website's in danger, mm-hmm. will go out and crawl it. You know, And there's a couple of tools you can use to download all the web pages on a site. And um, they worked really hard to save Gawker back when Gawker looked like they were going to lose their lawsuit and went into bankruptcy. Mm. They sprung into action early. And so I think it's all been saved. If you go to archive.org um, and fire up the Wayback Machine, you can put in a, a URL and you'll get a calendar that will show you what days they pulled a snapshot of that website. And so you click on a date. Um, and you can see it changing over time. The the thing we always love to do is point people to Yahoo at the very beginning and I guess, 96. And this primitive, you know, all text-based site with terrible-looking, you know, type. It looks like a, a three-year-old designed it. And then, you know, it gets ultra fancy. And now, you know, the crowded Yahoo with all this stuff going on.
1: Hmm. Well, do you mind if we return a little bit more to, sure. to film yeah. itself and, and, and your, your first true love, I suppose, at least in occupation? I had trouble, and reading a bit up on you before this interview, deciding whether or not you were a filmmaker and editor. Are you a filmmaker or are you an editor? So, great question. Um, I've, not,
2: I've not made a film so far that I've shot. I'm thinking about doing that this next year. But mostly I work with archival material. And part of that is um, archival material is underused, underexposed. I'll put it another way. I'm an evidence guy. I love looking at archival material that tells us something about the past or about human behavior, about the way that we organize ourselves socially. I don't like the current trend in documentary, which is called storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of, if you need to get something through the gatekeepers at PBS or HBO, You've got to tell a story. You need a narrative arc. You need compelling characters. You need um, a sense of jeopardy or a problem with some kind of resolution. And, you know, this is the way dramatic films have worked and the theater has worked for hundreds of years. But it doesn't serve documentary well because it means we get these cookie cutter documentaries that may be about this or that problem or this or that community or this or that issue. But they kind of are all made the same way. And, you know, they're courageous filmmakers who have the power or the the foolishness to experiment, but they're they're marginalized. And what I want to do is get people fascinated with the evidence again. So when I do my urban history screenings, like the lost landscapes of San Francisco or, or what I call yesterday and tomorrow in Detroit, um, I put together uh, film material from these cities that's not the same material people would expect that they haven't seen. And I try to cut something together which profiles the city from a perspective that's going to be unfamiliar, that's going to encourage people to look at their city in a new light, to imagine a different kind of future once they look at the past. These films have some of, there's a little bit of sound film in it, but most of them are silent. And I ask the audience to make the soundtrack. I ask the audience to identify people, places, and events. You know, shout them out. I ask them to ask questions. I ask them to dispute what their neighbors are saying, if they think their neighbors Mm -hmm. are wrong. It's just amazing. When you pull back a little bit and you let the audience complete the film, you let the audience own each screening and define it in their own way, really, really interesting things happen. So most of my work is editing, selection and editing, but it's um, pretty highly structured. You know, I, I really think quite a lot about what I'm doing, and there is a kind of dramatic structure, but I don't want to tell the same kind of stories I want to open up the idea of storytelling to really to allow for infinite possibilities rather than just do the same old thing over and over.
1: So when you show screenings of, for example, the Lost Landscapes of San Francisco or of Detroit or even your most recent No More Road Trips, do you find that the location of the screening affects the soundtrack of the audience when you have a screening in, for example, Detroit or in San Francisco? Do you hear audience members shout out? I remember that, or that's my neighbor's house, or do you find them to be uh, more standard, and the the audience response is no matter where the the film is shown?
2: So some audiences are better are better behaved than others. You know, I'm in favor of a transgressive experience in the movies. You know, mm-hmm. you go to the movies, the lights go down, your phone is off. It's a bit like church, and doesn't have to be that way. There's many things. Once you get all these people in a movie theater, you're kind of wasting the possibilities if you don't ask them to do something, right? You've got 200 <laughs> people in a room. Do something with them. Don't just, you know, make them get quiet. Um, so there's some trends. Some audiences are quieter. Some are noisier. We're road trips, which is my Dream road trip movie. We can talk about that. But where um, it works really well in community screenings, where it doesn't work is in um, places where there's a lot of cinephiles, hmm. where you have people who are really um, fixed on that experience of a quiet, dark room, alone with your thoughts, watching a movie. More fixating, and... Yeah, where you have the people that are obsessed with cinema. That, it doesn't work as well. Um, and, you know, when I show these, uh, I mean, San Francisco now has become kind of an institution. I do it every year in December at De Castro, which is our movie palace. It's 1,400 seats. And um, I sometimes have tried to stop doing it, and people won't let me. It's the new Nutcracker, you know. <laughs> and we have a room with 1,400 people, and they're wild. And people have come to expect it. And um, there's a lot of people who've been for the entire 10 years. And the Detroit screening's um, very different story. So, um, you know, I've been interested in Detroit and its history for many years. That's a, a city that's um, always been a battleground between mm-hmm. contested, uh, space has been contested, and, you know, whether it's labor struggles or um, struggle against racism, there's always been just tremendous um, social upheaval in Detroit. And I wanted to make a contribution. Um, I don't know what should happen in Detroit. I'm not able to to say that, and I'm an outsider, but I thought, look, let me bring some of this historical footage back, um, let people talk about it, and then leave the material there for them to recut uh, and make their own films if they wanted. And those screenings have been amazing because people see the past, and it really helps them think about um, different futures. And so... It's just my contribution. Let's throw a little history into the mix because that's our big issue in America. You know, we're nostalgic and we kind of, we all collect things and we're interested in history, but oftentimes we don't want to tackle um, histories that are not so pleasant. You know, we want history to affirm what we already feel. We don't want history to problematize the way we feel. And so part of working with archival film and doing screenings is to help people think a little bit differently. Mm. about their community or about their past or about our, our collective uh, heritage. Hmm.
1: Throwing things away, that comes up a lot, in the, at least in the titles of your work. There's a sense of impermanence, uh, terms like ephemera and the lost landscapes. Mm-hmm. I suppose I, I understand what you find compelling about forgotten films and stories and how important they can be when viewed from a certain direction. Have you ever come across any ephemera that you find absolutely uninteresting, <laughs> and what is it that makes you edit something out rather than edit it into one of your documentaries or one of your films?
2: To paraphrase uh, somebody who once wrote about libraries, there's a film for everyone, and there's everyone. There's a there's a person for every film. I used to think that some of the most boring films we ever had were um, machine shop films like The Making of Screws and, you know, Tapping a Thread and things like that. (laughs) And it turns out we get a researcher in who's working on just that. So I've come to believe that there's an audience for pretty much everything. The problem is that it's expensive to, to keep material. It's expensive to scan and preserve it. It's a major undertaking there's a few things that a few kinds of film ephemera I'm a little tired of and, and I'm going to turn this into a little moral tale for the audience when you look <laughs> at home movies you see hours and hours of the Grand Canyon now the Grand Canyon doesn't change and when somebody's panning you know over the Grand Canyon with a movie camera it's visually not that very interesting either might be interesting what people are doing at the rim of the Grand Canyon but I when I see the Grand Canyon I go up turn on the tea water. (laughs) When people shot home movies in the old days, they shot flowers, they shot gardens, they shot statues. Those are boring. Those don't change. But when somebody took their home movie camera into the gas station or into the bar or into the grocery store in Sullivan County, Indiana, that's when you see something that's a real record of something dynamic and changing and impermanent. And that's really cool. And so I think the lesson for us today is that when we shoot videos, you know, we shouldn't just shoot the sky and the clouds. Let's shoot the Seven Let's go in the store that, you know, is the vape store. Let's shoot the things that aren't going to be with us forever and try to document those aspects of our life that are constantly changing. Think about uh, what kinds of um, histories are the most fragile.
1: Well, what could you tell us about your process of selection and deciding what femora to include? You've already mentioned, you know, the the everyday life rather than the sky and the trees and the Grand Canyon. But what are you looking for technically? Is it just a matter of this is how many films I have and this is the <laughs> available evidence I have? Or, well, you know, this one looks a little bit clearer. This was shot a little bit more cleanly.
2: So... Um the conventional archivists, the most important part of their work is called appraisal. That doesn't mean how much money is it worth. Mm-hmm. That means appraising archival material to see if it's of permanent value because we know we can't keep everything. However, I always collected endangered genres of film where much of the material didn't exist anymore. Of the industrial films I collected, probably you know only half survive. Um, the rest, who knows where they've gone. Home movies, a lot of home movies are missing. So my selection criteria was select everything. I tried to collect as complete a cross-section as I could of industrial and educational films. And by the time our collection went to Library of Congress, I'd collected 15% of total production. So wow. I had 60,000 films. It was about 15% of what I estimate was produced. And with home movies... Um, I mean, this may sound like hoarding, but I collect, <laughs> I collect every home movie that um, has been made by a North American that I can or of somebody traveling in North America. What I don't collect is material made by, let's say, people from the United Kingdom in the U.K. That should be in a U.K. Mm-hmm. archives, and I would try to root that material in that direction. But um, my goal with a home movie collection is to build a complete a picture of 20th century life and ethnography and culture as I can. I mean, just imagine if we had home movie collections from the 19th century or from the Revolutionary War, if we had that kind of coverage. And I want to make sure that people down the road can look at the 20th century and all of its complexity um, and see this incredible detail. Also, since home movies and home video are basically infinite, we have to imagine the future audience as not even being human. You know, machines are going to analyze a lot of this, and right now, this is embryonic, but down the road, people will use sophisticated computers and algorithms to analyze amateur media and learn some things about it. You know, right now, we could tell, is this a car? Mm-hmm. Are we inside or outside? Is this a human or an animal? Sometimes we might guess wrong. But uh, down the road, I think the main audience for a lot of this material will be analytic machines.
1: So which audience do you prioritize? The audience of now or the audience of the indefinite future?
2: Audience of now is all I've got. And so I'm really interested in just you know doing whatever I can to make work and show it. I think most archivists are starting to feel that way. Mm-hmm. The bias in the archival field until recently was, you know, let's collect it. Um, And, you know, maybe people did screenings in-house, but there wasn't as much focus on what we call access, you know, making material accessible. And now uh, with the Internet, you know, we've been able to put 6,000 films online at Internet Archive and free download, no restrictions, about 160 million views and downloads. I can't tell you how many new works have been made using our material. I'm mean, going to guess it's in the low hundreds of thousands, but who knows? Because you totally lose control. But um,
1: 160 million downloads?
2: Yeah, and these are, not, these are obscure films. You know, The most famous is Duck and Cover, but there's films like Parade of Invertebrates and Things Expand When Heated. These are pretty obscure films. But people really love them. They're all over the place. Other archives are working really hard to do that as well. Indiana, which is, um, I don't know if mm-hmm. people locally know it, this is one of the most sophisticated and forward looking film archives in the world. It's recognized as a player in the international level, it's a member of the International Federation of Film Archives, which is not easy. To become one. There's a a mass digitization project here at Indiana, which is just starting to do film. And I think they're going to find a way to build a huge open access digital archives uh, in a relatively short period of time. But I expect great things from here.
1: I've read several other interviews that you've given where you've emphasized your interest in the physicality of film, the stuff itself. And it seems like you're doing that with your students as well. Um, What's so compelling about it? Do you see a difference between... Film that you found on VHS or old reel to reel versus maybe digital film that might be more widely available today. So, you know, digital's kind of mysterious. I mean, yes, it's stored somewhere.
2: Digital is actually material because mm-hmm. it sits on a chip or it sits in a drive somewhere. But it's a little mysterious. When I show students, you know, in all my classes, we pass around film and we look at two-inch videotape, you know, big heavy Mm -hmm. reels. There's a lot of fascination because it makes people think about images in a different way when you see the, you know, materiality of some of these old media. The turn to digital has allowed us to understand analog a lot better. We see film with new eyes we see videotape with new eyes, because we kinda wanna know where our images come from. The digital world is, we don't really understand all of its effects yet, but there's a sense of mystification because things kinda come out of nowhere. A lot of our work now is working with keyboards and machines and displays. Many of us are knowledge workers or work with symbolic stuff in a digital Mm -hmm. domain, and so is our leisure. And when our work and leisure are the same, uh, a lot of the digital play seems like work. And um, there's something reassuring about the physical media. There's something that just it makes you want to touch it. It makes you want to hold up to the light. I've never had trouble getting volunteers to come and work. Uh, helping to prepare film for scanning and we don't just take their time we train them in job skills at the same time but everybody wants to touch film it's the steampunk thing you know touching film is super satisfying for people
1: is this some of the work that you do at the Prelinger Library it's been referred to as an appropriation friendly workshop can you tell us a little bit more about how it operates So my spouse, uh, Megan, and I, in 2004, put our book
2: collections together and rented some space. The real estate market was cheap right then, and so we rented the space in downtown San Francisco, and we opened up a library. Our friends who teach art school and other kinds of stuff started coming and bringing their students, and suddenly we got jammed. And so it's this big room with 11-foot ceilings and about 50,000 books and a lot of old print ephemera. A lot of magazines and periodicals, probably 700 titles, and appropriation-friendly. People come in. We say, welcome to the library. This is an extension of our living room. You are warmly encouraged to scan and take pictures. About half the people who come, come because they want material to make part of their own work. They might Mm -hmm. be artists or community activists or filmmakers or writers. Some people come just to read. Some people come just to look at the arrangement because we don't have a catalog. We have a kind of geospatial arrangement where you move through space and time as you go through the library. We do events there. We have guest hosts. We have exhibitions and talks. And it's become it's become kind of a maker space for history. And it's also a salon. People come to talk to us, to scheme new projects, to make books. It's kind of amazing what happens there. We had no mission statement. We had no plans. We had no budget. We just did it. Um, And now we raise enough money to, uh, this is the first year, we've raised enough money from individual contributors and from some grants to run the place. But it's kind of what it is. It's It's a gentle critique of old school librarianship because we don't have that catalog and because anybody can touch anything. We have very few rules We just ask people, you know, to pull the books out carefully so they won't break the binding. But it is amazing. And I'll tell you what, for us, has been the most amazing discovery. Most of the people who use the library are quite young, people under maybe 27. You know, all the stereotypes, young people don't read, reading is dead, books are over. Young people are screenagers, you know, all this sort of very negative stuff because a lot of people are quite phobic about younger people. You know, they're threatened. But a lot of younger people didn't grow up around books, didn't grow up around print. I grew up in a house filled with print, but that's a different—that's an experience, a privilege that a lot of people haven't had. And so, our library is really special, and
1: people just go wild in there. I think the open access to everything is is an interesting topic, and will be to some listeners. Uh, you've done work with the Open Content Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever run into any? trouble with the material that you've used both for your films or for the library. So one of the great things about um,
2: ephemeral films and what we like to call useful cinema a lot of times now is that most of it is out of copyright. Either it was never copyrighted or it was and the copyright expired or there's a deficiency in the copyright notice that threw it into the public domain. So we've got this huge arena to play in. And if you look at print in America, You know, a lot of trade books and a lot of fiction, um, that the copyrights were renewed, uh, and many of them are still in effect. But when you deal with nonfiction, when you deal with magazines, especially trade magazines, and when you deal with print ephemera, um, most of our library is out of copyright. And so there's no restrictions of any kind on reusing it. And actually, we assume that all our users are making fair use of the material. Hmm. We don't have people coming in scanning books and then selling copies of them. We don't have that, those kinds of users. People are um, making transformative use or they're quoting or they're... It's one of the, the fair use um, exemptions. Mm-hmm. Fair use is an exemption. It's a defense. We won't get into all that. But we really encourage um, people to consume both collections. And, uh, but at the same time, we respect creators' rights. Most of the films that we make available were made by corporations who didn't bother to renew them. So it's mm-hmm. fair game. Overall, it's a big problem. I'm a baby boomer. A lot of my history has fallen into the public domain. Well, we like to say risen into the public domain. (laughs) Um, If you're a a so-called Gen Xer or a so-called millennial, a lot of your history is in copyright. So Mm -hmm. you could make something for private use. You could do a student film. You could do something independent. But if you threw it up on YouTube, it might get taken down. So there's a, a generational divide there. And what I think we've got to realize is that culture flourishes when there's a, uh, an ethos of free quotation and reuse, that the value of a work is enhanced when it's quoted and when it's propagated? Do you think that Stairway to Heaven is any less valuable of a copyright because it's on the radio every 30 seconds sometime in America? When we give away our material online, we also, if you want the very highest quality or if you want a written license agreement where we say, hey, if you've got a problem, we'll pay your legal fees, call indemnification. We sell more footage than we ever did because we give it away. It's counterintuitive, but it really works. And, uh, you know, I think in time we'll move towards a a period of sort of, you know, freer use and a lot of these copyright disputes will appear quaint. You know, that said, there's some things that um, probably always need to be private. There's issues of respect and issues of uh, kindness are ultimately a lot more important than copyright. There's material that's uh, legitimately private that might be sacred to certain societies. That might be ceremonies, footage of ceremonies that aren't intended for public use. A lot of people who um, went to uh, Native communities in America to shoot people dancing uh, have film, and that film shows ceremonies that are considered sacred Mm -hmm. by the people that perform them, and we should respect that, but... That We should be a lot more open
1: about that, and we're getting that way. Finally, I'd like to hear a little bit more about No More Road Trips. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about it, especially for those who may have missed it, and where they might be able to see it um, outside of official screenings?
2: No More Road Trips is a dream road trip across the United States from Atlantic Ocean to Pacific Ocean. It's all made out of home movies that are structured geographically. It's about 80 or 90 families. I think I looked through around 4,800 films, and I think I pulled pieces out of maybe six or eight hundred to make it. Why did I make it? A young man, uh, Jeremy Blatter, who was working with us as an intern some years ago, was hearing me talk about taking a road trip, and he said, Rick, would you just stop it? You know, you're a baby boomer. Uh you have a car, you know. When you were young, uh, gas was cheap. You could just get up and go. And you know, me and a lot of my friends, we don't have licenses. Gas is four fifty a gallon. It was at that point. Gas was high. He said, "Road trips are over." And that got me to thinking because it was true that for a while younger people were delaying getting their driver's licenses and driving miles were down. But I was interested in this question of whether our sense of travel had changed. Was the whole idea of the road trip as this journey of discovery, you know, this epiphany, you discover yourself? Um, road trip as quest was that over? I and mean, I was interested in the different kinds of travel. You know, there's travel for pleasure. There's travel to improve your life. There's migration. Sometimes it's involuntary, people who are relocated um, against their will. The um, highway was a different experience for African-Americans than it was for white Americans. There were special travel guides called the Green Book that said this is a safe place to stay if you're black. You'll be welcome here. These have all been digitized now, and they're online. Um, so, I was kind of interested in recovering the sense of travel, both the excitement and the uh, maybe the downside. And I was also interested in telling the story of the 20th century through changes in the landscape. So, No More Road Trips is indeed a road trip. It's got a beginning, middle, and an end, it goes through a lot of places, but it shows the um, marks of history on the countryside. It shows oil being drilled, oil wells on fire. It shows smoke in the air. It shows industry. It shows rural areas, sometimes thriving, sometimes barely hanging on. Uh, It shows the effects of war on the American landscape. And if you watch it thoughtfully, you really get, I think, a sense of, of the history of this country in the 20th century that you wouldn't get from anywhere else. Footage is kind of wonderful.
1: Today I've been speaking with our guest, Rick Pralinger. Rick, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure. Great conversation.
0: That was Andy Finley speaking with archivist Rick Pralinger. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, we're listening to conversations about preserving film. Next, we'll hear a conversation with a trio of musicians called the Alloy Orchestra. For over 20 years, the trio has written and performed live accompaniments for silent film. David Carter spoke with the trio in September when they were visiting Bloomington to perform at the IU Center.
3: Our guest today is the Alloy Orchestra. The Alloy Orchestra is a trio of musicians from Boston that writes and performs new and original music to accompany silent films. Using everything from a plain old keyboard to pieces of found junk, they have brought their unique sound to films such as Metropolis, The General, Man with a Movie Camera, and Phantom of the Opera. They have performed at world-renowned film festivals and venues, including the Telluride Film Festival, Lincoln Center, the Louvre, and the National Gallery of Art. If that wasn't enough, late film critic Roger Ebert held them as the best in the world at accompanying silent films. The members of the trio are percussionist Terry Donahue, keyboardist Roger Miller, and percussionist, clarinetist, and director Ken Winokur. Thank you all for being here today. Nice to be here, David. Our pleasure. So, first I'd like to get some background, just on the band in general, and I'll direct most of these questions at you, Ken. So, when I was reading up and doing my research, I learned that... uh, Isle Orchestra was formed back in New Year's Eve on quote a snow swept pedestal in the Boston Commons. Uh, and that's a story I really want to hear. But then I also dug up that there's like a little prehistory of the band in that started as early as 1986. So can you tell me like how the band formed in the beginning and then how we got to that snow swept pedestal on New Year's Eve?
4: Well, nobody knows about the 1986 performance. That was a one-night affair. Uh, we were doing uh, my partner, Caleb Sampson, who was one of the original members of Alley, but unfortunately died. Uh, and I were doing a soundtrack for a theater performance of Marilyn Monroe versus the Vampires, Whoa. which is a Rainer Werner Fassbinder theater play. And... Uh, They had built this enormous and amazing junk metal set, several stories. There was a staircase of air conditioners we could go up onto and big stainless steel columns we had scavenged from the junkyard. But the performance required just the quietest and most subtle background. So we had this astounding set that we hardly could really use. So we asked the director if we could do our own performance one night after one of his shows was done. And that was the founding of the Alley Orchestra
3: then what caused uh, the band to then evolve and then go into this performance on New Year's Eve in 1991?
4: Well, we skip ahead about, I guess, five years. Uh, You know, we hadn't really thought about doing anything else under that name, but we were going to be doing a very large-scale junk metal installation in the park in Boston for the New Year's Eve celebration they call First Night, and uh, we had uh, gone to another junkyard and gotten literally tons of junk from... uh, furnace tanks to at least 50 10-foot plumbing pipes and gongs and just whatnot. It was all in the round. Uh, It was an amazing installation of stuff. And when we were looking for a name for it, we just flashed back on that old performance we'd done, and the alloy orchestra still seemed to be appropriate, given the the setup.
3: And then was that performance on New Year's Eve, 1981, that was... Fritz Lang's Metropolis, correct?
4: No, that one actually was without films. We uh, had a slideshow that I made that uh, just had credits and stuff, but basically that was just a music performance. And then six months later, uh, we were asked by a local film programmer in Boston if we would essentially toss together a casual score for Metropolis. And we worked for a few weeks writing themes and then had a whole weekend's worth of shows where we did a lot of improvisation. It's not enough time to really write a score for an hour-and-a-half movie. So we had rough themes, and then we improvised around it and uh, did, I think, probably five shows over that weekend. Uh, the first show was modestly attended, and the word of mouth got around, and by the end we sold out to the uh, 600-seat theater. and uh, We essentially looked at each other and just said, damn, this is good. Let's do more of this stuff. So.
3: <laughs> so staying, just keeping in Boston for a second, what was the uh, Boston music scene like at the time? Then, like, how did you guys, like, end up fitting in? Yeah, so... yeah. answer this? Yeah, if you, if I, I you have wanted, any insight...
5: You could start, Mike. Oh, I'll <laughs> go ahead to this and that. Well,
4: we were all uh, involved in the Boston music scene. We were all in uh, rock bands of one sort or another. Uh, Roger's in a very prominent rock band called Mission of Burma. I was going to get to that later. Terry and but, yeah. I were in a lot of less prominent bands, possibly... That's good. Um, <laughs> and uh, we knew one another. You know, we'd seen each other play. Terry and I had collaborated on a project called the Concussion Ensemble. And Roger and I and then Terry and Roger had played in some of Roger's bands called No, Man, no Man's Band. Anyway, we, you know, it was sort of what people think of as the downtown New York jazz scene where all the musicians yeah. get together, work with each other, and explore the kind of richness of the musical talent in town, of which there's an astounding amount
5: in Boston because of the music schools and the huge amounts of students and whatever. So there's a lot of the rock element. Everybody in this group had played in rock bands at various times, but there was always more than just rock music going on. I'd already done some silent film accompaniment, though I was not in the Alloy Orchestra at this time, and I'd done a lot of soundtrack work. And then both Terry and Ken had played on my recording projects or interacted in something like that. So it was, it was just kind of a natural thing that was happening. You know. So it was the whole thing just kind of flowed together. So there's
3: a lot of cross-pollination going yeah, on. Yeah, a lot of cross-pollination. Which then, I'm assuming, that would naturally just influence the sound you would bring into the screen. So there were a couple of pieces of music I wanted to like talk about. Especially from two of the shorts in particular, one of them is called "It's the film The Acrobatic Fly." And for those who don't know, uh, it's a short film that it seems like it's just a fly performing what appears to be tricks, twirling anything from a blade of grass to another fly. And so we're going to hear a few seconds from that. question at you Terry Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, can you tell me about what the process for composing that was because to me it sounded like it's all just percussion the entire thing is percussion so was it improvised was it composed as you heard it's very zany sounding like almost
6: postmodern sounding classical music to a certain extent well that one is unique in a lot of respects uh, visually, if you see the fly, I mean, it's just kind of horrible. It's this close up of a fly pinned to a little chair that they built, fly size. And they, yeah, like you said, they give it things to play with, and a fly will naturally play with it. So we just looked around at each other and was like, what do you do to this? So we said, well, let's just push the go button and see what happens. <laughs> Which is exactly what we did. There was no discussion about what we were going to do. We just pushed it and started to play. Um, It is very percussive. There is keyboard in it, but it's a very percussive styled keyboard. And it's very short. So once we played it the first time, we looked around and I was just like, all right, this film is just so ridiculous. Let's take one more take. So we did a whole second take again without any discussion. And then sort of spliced them together. So that one is really unique, both visually and as far as our approach. You mentioned that it's like it's mostly just improvised. You just like went at it. It's interesting that you have picked the most improvised of anything that we've done. <laughs> I uh, I love improvisation. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's actually another film I to talk about.
3: It's a uh, clay, or the origin of species mm-hmm. of the species. Uh, it's a short film from 1964, and it's this great stop motion piece uh, that's like a piece of clay that's morphing into all these different shapes and almost dancing with itself, and different animals, and all these sort of different things. Uh, and then the music to it, it starts off as kind of this like metallic sounding, like ambient industrial sound, just like mostly like metal sounding percussion and then it goes into uh, kind of this like wandering string thing that seems like it's played on the keyboards but then a bulk of it is this like groovy latin tinged new orleans inspired piano groove so we'll take a listen to that for a second too so then roger our director said you um why did you decide on like just such a like groovy theme and like is it mostly is that mostly also just improvised or is it uh is it very written out well you know we look at everything we do the
5: film is our conductor that's like the cliche thing we always say the yeah. film is our conductor and this this clay just constantly just morphs and it's kind of jolly and then it has some little dark moments And it's just kind of a groove. So Ken's a a very good hand percussionist Yeah, he knows the hand drums. And so he laid up a groove, and I laid up a bass line and a piano, and we just kind of follow along. When it gets darker, I hit some darker chords. It's very loose and improvisational. Uh, But, you know, again, we're only doing it to fit the film. Everything we do, whether we're doing crazy improv or tightly scripted, it's all in service of the film.
3: So I was mistaken that the first film you guys played to was Metropolis, but you guys have a history... With this film, playing it uh, in Boston, and as you said with Variety, it's more composed and such. But then also, Metropolis is like this like big landmark film, and people hold it to very high stature. And there's all the like legacy with like different cuts of it being found, different cuts of it being made. So like, how has that score morphed and changed over the years to what you guys have now, as opposed to when you started? And then, what was it like? composing for just like such a like big, iconic film?
6: Well, it all started with the Giorgio Moroder print that, oh, really? that okay. was restored in the mid-'80s. That's why we're even doing silent films. Uh, the film programmer in Boston, a man named David Kleiler, wanted to show that print, which he loved the restoration, but he didn't think the music was somehow appropriate. It had... Disco rock songs from people like Adam Ant and Freddie Mercury from Queen and Lover Boy and Pat Benatar. So uh, I think there's a lot of people who don't think that's the most appropriate (laughs) music for that film. So the first run through was again, we didn't completely naive. We didn't really know what we were doing. We just played what we thought was appropriate and that film, that cut was an hour and a half long. Then we lost the copyright to be able to perform that version. At which point we started playing the, the original English language print that had come from Australia, uh, which was 20 minutes longer, cut completely differently, and then the intertitles were changed to make it like a really ultra-religious film. So we played that for a little while, and then they came out with a new restoration, which was again 20 minutes longer, cut completely differently, <laughs> and with added footage and lengthened footage and... Each time, it was uh, difficult to patch and repatch, and so each time we're adding more themes and basically rearranging and structuring the pieces that we had. And then comes the fourth version, the one they call the Complete Metropolis, 20 minutes longer again, so now we're at two and a half hours from the hour and a half we first started. They had really expanded some of the characters and and whole new scenes that were not in any of the other versions. So we did, for that version, a lot more um, new compositions. But again, everything was structured differently, so it's com- arranged things and, and place them in different places and, and elaborate on some of the more simple themes and really piece it together. The good news is, the film makes most, the most sense it ever has. The bad news is it's two and a half hours long. <laughs> yeah, But the good news is you play it and people freak out when it's like, oh God, it's gonna be really long. And then when it's over there, you forgot that it was really long. You get so wrapped up in it. So it's finally where it should be, I think.
3: Um, well, following that up, uh, were there any other bands like this around at the time or close nearby? There's a group called the Club Foot Orchestra out of San Francisco,
4: and uh, we've become friends with them, and uh, we sort of have gone back and explored this. And we individually, on separate coasts, sort of came up with this idea at almost exactly the same time. But, you know, to some extent, uh, the new era of silent film accompaniment starts at approximately the time when we
5: started. Uh, When Mishnu Burma folded the first time in 1983, the same director, David Kloyler, he had asked me to do a lot of silent film accompaniment, and I did quite a bit, but it was... And I had an electric piano, and I put alligator clips and bolts so I'd do a lot of prepared piano, and I had loops so I could build up a large ensemble, and I did that off and on many for many years, and so even when I joined the Alloy Orchestra, it was already something somewhat natural to me, but I had other things going on, and I never ran with it. It was just kind of like, it was just something I occasionally did. Whereas when the Alloy Orchestra did it in you know, a grander scale because they had, like, you know, this crazy
3: ensemble, that's when the, when it took off. Obviously, you guys said you got down to a science, you're a tight-knit unit. Have you ever just, like, ah, it would be cool if we had, like, just this one color that we could get if we just asked someone to come in and just play with us for this one time? Or, or is that just something just, like, at this point, it's just like it's never crossed your mind?
6: Well, luckily, between the three of us, someone can figure out how to play whatever we need enough to fake it. So if we need a specific sound, you know, usually if it's something obscure, then we can go into the synthesizer and, and make it happen. Um, I mean, that's sort of how I started playing the accordion. We needed an accordion for a film, so I became an accordion player. Um,
4: and that's how I started playing the clarinet, we needed at least one more melodic instrument and... I was only a drummer
6: and literally had
4: to teach myself the clarinet to play the simplest possible
6: clarinet parts. So there have been moments where we've needed guitar, and Roger plays the guitar. He plays some trumpet uh, or cornet, and uh, I also play the musical saw, and we have um, orchestral bells and xylophones when needed. So between the three of us, we pretty much cover all the territory we need. But
5: there's an interesting phenomenon when um, people are watching a movie when they're primarily, humans are primarily eye oriented so if they're watching the movie they associate whatever you're doing with the movie. So there's a sound that these guys create which is, there's a metal duct pipe and they take a drumstick and scrape it along it. Now it makes kind of terrifying sounds. That has been dinosaurs screaming, doors opening, machinery falling. It. The exact same sound, by depending on what you're seeing, you associate and you turn it into coming out of what you're seeing. So that's a real, I
3: find an interesting phenomenon of the band and why the band works. Do you guys have uh, composers or music or themes or specific or broad? that you get uh, that you pull influence from when you're scoring things. Or like if it's a specific movie you need a specific mood or you're like, we'll take Holst and that we'll take a bit of the planets and we'll put it here because this is what it reminds us of, or anything along those lines or We don't do a lot of that. I mean, one of the nice things about this group is we actually come from very
4: diverse backgrounds. Uh, Terry's got a passion for old-time country music. Roger has classical training. I studied a lot of African and Latin hand drumming. And although we have never done anything, you know, specifically in those genres, uh, they inform the music we play. And we don't talk that much about it when we're going to do something. We literally just pick up an instrument. Somebody starts playing. Somebody responds to it. Uh, If it's good, we keep it. And uh, the style and the direction sort of organically coalesces around the movie that we're working on.
5: And we did a a score uh, for the film Chang, which is a faux documentary about Thailand. And I play like a a faux nondescript, something that people in the United States can project onto. It sounds like we're playing Thai music, though it's Clearly not. And he's playing <laughs> on a banjo. And I'm playing it on a banjo that I tweak. But then there's this theme when the elephants are moving and Terry's got this thing going. We realized that the theme I was playing sounded like shake, shake, shake. <laughs> shake, shake good. Except for it was, the context was so incredibly far removed. So sometimes those things do creep in.
4: Yeah. Uh, My favorite composer is uh, an American named Harry Parch. Harry Parch made his own instruments. He was an amazing craftsman, and he worked with an extremely elaborate microtonal scale, which basically sounds out of tune to me and I think most people, Um, and it's almost entirely percussion. And uh, I can't say any of our music sounds like his, well, there's also strings, Uh, but the idea of... Inventing an instrument to play the music that you have in your head was, to me, groundbreaking. And our instrument is essentially homemade. We, I mean, we use conventional drums and cymbals and gongs, but it, we've deconstructed the drum set. We've taken the orchestral percussion section and mashed it together and hung it from wires on these stands. And it is really a, a unique instrument that nobody else really is a, you know, has done anything quite in this direction. So Harry Parch is the one
3: I go to. So you guys are your your companies, essentially. The film is what the people come out to see, but they're also there to see you. How do you balance the idea that you're supposed to be supporting this film that's up on screen, but at the same time you're also a band, you're touring, you're playing, people are coming to see you. There's always a little bit of showmanship in any band. How do you balance that between these people are here to see this film, but they're also here to see
6: us Early on, it was a difficult transition as a performer, because when you're on a stage, and you're, you get to look at your audience and f- know how they feel about you, and then react accordingly, whether they, you know, the love it, hate it, or completely indifferent. At least you know. With this, you have to believe that they're loving it for the full anywhere from hour to two and a half hours and it is such a leap of faith that you really just have to believe in what you're doing
5: yeah there's there's a tension to it that we are actually making at the moment that i believe the audience kind of feels and it just it just ramps the whole thing up so that the experience becomes greater than the sum of the parts it's better than the film better than the music it just goes it puts them together and just cranks it up
4: the great Cliche about silent films is that silent films were never silent. They always had a live uh, musical accompaniment. There are apparently some exceptions to this. But for the most part, every silent film was made with the assumption that there would be a live accompanist playing at the same time. If you watch a silent film without any accompaniment, just silent, and we all do this on TV, you know, I get in tapes and we're trying to find a film, they're kind of boring because they're missing a really major element. They seem very slow. You know, there'll be long scenes where nothing is really happening, and you can only imagine, you know, that the director knew that there was an accompanist who was actually carrying the ball at that point. So, you know, among certain members of the silent film community who are very conservative about the way they approach these things, they feel that the accompanist should really remain in the background and be kind of colorless. We don't accept that. I believe that the music is of equal importance to the film and that if we step forward, you know, because we're loud or exciting or we just have a melody that you just can't get out of your head, you know, that actually helps propel that film rather than compete with it.
3: I've been speaking today with the Alloy Orchestra. Thank you for joining us.
0: That was David Carter speaking with the Alloy Orchestra in September of this year. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling... 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.